Hello, welcome to Revolution. Um, it's pretty cool to be in a new place. Uh, so if all of you that have not been here um, before, welcome. Welcome. It's good to see all of you. Um, we have some, uh, do we have the slides for the small groups? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, I'm going to butcher these. Um, so every week uh, we have some small groups going throughout the week. Um, if you don't know what a small group is, it's basically where we can all come, um, you know, it's basically like Bible studies um, and different lessons going on. Um, and so on Monday nights, do we have one on Mondays? Do we have a, a small group on Monday nights? Rev on yes, Rev on Campus. David is um, going to be teaching on campus Monday nights. So those of you who go to Shawnee, um, if you don't, then this doesn't pertain to you. Um, try and spread the word. David's going to be talking about things that he addresses in his sermons and um, hopefully talking about things... Um, that you can talk with unbelievers about. So if you guys have some friends, bring them out to that. It's on the, one of the lecture halls in the library, um, 8 o'clock on Mondays. And on Tuesday, we have an, a Bible study on campus in the basement of Massey in the lecture hall. Um, that's at 8 o'clock as well. So if you guys are on campus, you don't have classes going on, come by. Um, we're doing a cool video series, so it would be good to have you out there. Um, Ryan Rolfe is doing um, some small, gr- uh, small group at his house at 5.30 on Wednesdays. Dave is also doing one then. I believe, um, at his house. So they'll be both on the stage tonight, too. So if you guys want to get involved, if you aren't, um, we just want to push you to get involved in those ways, too. Um, and I think that's... Oh, Allie and AJ. They do one on Thursday nights. Their house is right down the street. Um, so see them sometime after the service. If you guys want to get involved, they're doing a Bible study on Jonah. Um, so good. Small group's a great way to grow and get involved and learn. Um, so if you're just coming to church once a week, um, that's... You know, we'd advise, you know, you need to do more to grow. Um, Today is the first Sunday of the month, so we are doing communion after the service. Uh, And so, uh, you know, we will be partaking in communion, but also we will be um, having fellowship and having food after. So if you guys have not eaten dinner or if you have, um, stick around after the service. We'd love to have you, and uh, we'll go downstairs and have some food. Um, Cookout tomorrow. Um, Every Monday... Around 5.30, we, we do um, some service stuff here in the East End, like right across the street. We'd love to have you guys if you guys are free. Then um, tomorrow we're going to be having a cookout, and so hopefully uh, spreading the word in the community, getting people to come out and hopefully talk to them about Christ, and um, just give them some free food as well and build relationships with people out in the community. Um, I think one more thing, um, free market is coming up. I think that's the first week of November, um, I think the 7th. So uh, what free market is, is um, we're taking donations for that. So like clothes, um, gently worn clothes, not anything that you wouldn't want to give to yourself, um, or small appliances, anything that you, would, you could give out that you don't really need anymore. Um, we'd love for you to be able to give those things. So you can bring them here, and um, we will uh, let you know as, as it gets closer to having free market. What's up, Revolution? That was weak. Do it again. What's up, Revolution? Some of you still aren't paying attention. I can see there's a skirmish going on. Just like, I feel like we're Baptists. Like we're fighting over who's going to sit in the pew. This is, this is your, yeah, like you ever been to that church? Like this is my pew and if a visitor wants to sit here, like, mm-mm, you can sit in the back. Mm-mm. I grew up in that church. I don't know if any of you guys did. Um, so I have a pulpit to lean on. This is pretty cool. I'm going to get used to this. Um, so I wanted to start out with, I got to tell you guys a story. This has, like, I'm going to warn you, this has nothing to do with what I'm going to preach on, but I told my mother that I was going to, like, blow her cover to everyone this evening. Uh, my mom is uh, pretty awesome. She's a, a middle-aged white woman. Uh, let's just get that on the table so you guys know. Uh, and she is, uh, she's from the country, and uh, <laughs> just want to lay that before you. Uh, and as I'm running the cash register at the store that she owns that I work at, uh, she comes up to me, and she says something, and I answer. I say, sure, mama, right, because I call my mom mama sometimes. And she says, what song has mama in it? And I was like, I thought to myself, like a good metalhead. And, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, mama, I'm coming home, right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, right? And, uh, and she goes, yeah, that one's true, but uh, I was thinking of Dear Mama. Who here knows Dear Mama? Dave in the back, Tupac Shakur. <laughs> mom goes, Mom's like, I was thinking, of, is his name Tupac? Am I saying his name right? So, like, my mom is back in, the, she is a thug. She's back in her office 
counting her money, right, running the store, listening to like mid-90s gangster rap music, and I'm just blown away because she's like a pumpkin spice drinking, Ugg boot wearing white woman. And then there she is. Again, that has nothing to do with what I'm preaching on. I just wanted to like break the ice with that because that was just beautiful. Um, you guys don't think it's as funny as I did. Like, I had like tears running down my face after the story. It was awesome. Uh, but tonight what we're actually going to talk about um, it's a little bit more somber. It's going to make you guys think a little bit more, hopefully, is we're going to talk about truth, and we're going to talk about division that comes from truth and the exclusivity of truth um, and how truth by its very nature creates friction, especially between believers and non-believers because we as Christians claim to have the only truth about God and, and what he's done and about sin and about humanity. All right, so just to define truth for you, to lay this out, truth is the real facts about how things are. Merriam-Webster, right? That's one of the things that it says, that the real facts of how things are. So naturally, um, if something contradicts the real facts of how things are, it is necessarily false, right? It doesn't take a, like a genius to figure that out, All right? And this is actually one of the basic laws of logic. Uh, anyone philosophy classes? Anyone? Yeah, like three people, whatever. Um, right? Something can't be both A and not A at the same time, in the same place, in the same way. Right, so if something is true, it cannot be false at the same time because it is true. Right, like it can't be raining here on me and also not raining here on me. That just doesn't make any sense. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to do a philosophy class. I'm not, I'm not about that right now. But I just wanted to make that clear before we go on, because we live in a culture that tends to deny truth as being objective. Objective means something that truly exists in the world. Right, our culture denies that truth is real. We live in what's called a relativistic culture where something can be true for you and not true for me at the same time, right, which is just bogus and absolutely makes no sense, right, there has to be an objective standard for truth or we can't even speak to one another, right, like certain things, like we have to acknowledge an objective standard or we can't even talk, but this relativism that like pervades our culture uh, is, is easily seen in uh, like media, like just different TV shows we watch, anyone like Sons of Anarchy? Like, I know we're in church, but, like, yeah, you can be honest here. I've seen all those episodes, like, three times. That show is awesome. Don't watch it with your kids around, though, if you have kids. But uh, Sons of Anarchy, one of the things you hear a lot in that show is whenever their people are talking and they're telling their stories, someone will say, that's your truth. That's your truth. That's what you hear a lot. As in, your truth can be true, but it's different from my truth, which usually means someone's lying, right? Someone's telling something that's false. Um, but this idea, the reason why I wanted to lay that before you guys, this is relevant for us, because as Christians, living in a relativistic culture, we believe and claim a lot of truths that go against the grain of what our society tells us. But remember, if something is true, it is true regardless of whether or not you believe it. All right? It just is true. Like last night, I was arguing with Autumn. We were building some shelves, and I'm not the most masculine man in the world. And she's telling me, it's not level, Dave. And I'm like, yeah, it's level. And we're like having a small shouting match. This is the first fight we've had since we've been married. I'll throw it out. And, uh, and, and it didn't change the fact that it wasn't level. And whenever I screwed it into the wall, we had to take it right back out and <laughs> do another one, right? No matter what I said, she was still right. Even though I disagreed with her, she was right, right? But as Christians, like I was saying, we claim a lot of things uh, to be true. We say that there is one God and that he is a trinity in nature, that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that there is no other God but that God. Any other God is a false God. Right? We believe that the Bible is God's word. The Bible is always true, that he's given us 66 books worth of stuff to tell us about him and what he's done and what he's going to do and what he's currently doing right now as we speak. And we take that with authority as Christians. Um, we also claim this truth that in God's word, he's given us standards to live by. The, the two biggest ones is to worship him with everything that we have. And the second one is to love people with everything that we have. And that those are the standards that all human beings are told to live by. Um, and we're also told that everyone's a sinner, which means everyone disobeys these standards. We rebel against God, which is sin. And then we also claim this truth that sin deserves hell. So all people have sinned and all people deserve to be punished for all of eternity because they've rebelled against the holy, pure, loving God. And then we also claim that the only way to escape that punishment is by faith in Jesus. That Jesus would come to earth and live a sinless life and then in our place as a substitute go to the cross and suffer God's wrath that we deserve for our sin. And then was raised from the dead three days later to prove that God accepted his sacrifice and that if we would believe in Jesus, we owe God nothing for our sin because it's been paid for by Christ. We claim all of these truths. 
right? And those, those are all gospel truths. These are all central to our faith. All Christians can agree on these truths. And those things really cause a lot of problems. Those things cause a lot of problems for us culturally because people don't like those things. People want to reject that truth and make up one for themselves. And often, Christians, as we proclaim these truths, we get called things like arrogant or closed-minded or bigoted or, or whatever it is that people throw at us. And that's because we stand up and we declare these things to be true, even if people disagree with us. And we claim that one day, everyone is going to stand before God, and those truths are going to be very evident and very determining in where someone spends eternity. Now, I said all of that because tonight we're going to be talking about how the gospel divides people. Um, there is something about Jesus Christ that polarizes people. If you go up to someone, just try it. Go up to them and just talk about Jesus for a second. Like, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? And you get two responses. Yeah, dude, I love that guy. And like, I don't know, man. Like, like those are, Jesus is a polarizing man. Um, and we're going to see Jesus actually warn us to expect this kind of thing. Right, and we should expect it because truth, by definition, like I said, is exclusive. Either you believe it and you submit to it, or you're wrong. Right? Truth is exclusive. So by nature, and hear me, Christianity is exclusive. Right? And what I mean by that is Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except uh, through him. So there is no forgiveness for sin outside of Jesus. There is only hell outside of Jesus for us because we're sinners. Right? That means that Christianity is exclusive. So when I say that, I mean it that we, we either get with it and believe the gospel and submit to Christ, or we have no hope. Right? That's what I mean by Christianity is exclusive. There is no other truth about life, about God, about forgiveness, about, about sin, about who we are as human beings. There's no other truth outside of Jesus. Um, and we reject everything else as Christians. Right? But as exclusive as Christianity is, I've got to say this, and this is what I love about the gospel. Christianity is ridiculously inclusive, right? And what I mean by that is there is no type of person that becomes a Christian, right? That's awesome, right? This is good. Like, it used to be in order to, to be uh, a Jew, you had to become culturally Jewish, but there is no type of person. There is no set prerequisite background to become a Christian, right? And here at Rev, we have proof, right? We have recovering addicts. Here at Revolution, we have soccer moms, <laughs> We have college students, we have convicted felons, we have ex-atheists, we have you know, preacher's kids, we have people from all kinds of backgrounds. It is ridiculously inclusive. You know, God promises to save anyone from any walk of life if they will believe the gospel and put their faith in Christ. And that is true inclusivity, right? This is a loving God that would accept us through Christ even though we've rebelled against him. But not everyone is going to accept this truth about God. People won't. People are going to reject what Jesus has done and make up their own thoughts about who God is, turn to another false religion where it's not really God, but it's a man-made God, which is an idol. Um, and as we live as believers, with people around us rejecting this truth, we're going to experience the friction and division that comes with proclaiming the gospel, living holy lives and standing for truth. And that's what we're going to see this evening in Jesus' words. But we're also going to see that even though there's going to be division and strife and relationship issues because of our faith, that we're going to see that Jesus is worth it, right? And, and being brought to right standing with God through Christ surpasses anything that we might have to endure here for Christ's sake. All right, so without any more, we're going to hit Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. It's going to be here on the projector behind me. Um, and if you're here and you're new, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews, which is a strange statement for me to say. It's in the back of a pew. This is cool. Um, and you can take those home. Those are our gift to you. Take those with you. They're free. Um, but just real quick, th this, this is awesome. Uh, the, <laughs> the name of the series we're doing is, Did Jesus Really Say That? Right? So let's check this out. The first couple of verses. Let's just hit this. Jesus says this. I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under heavy burden until it is accomplished. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the most metal line in all of the Bible. Right? Like anyone else? Like anyone else a metal fan? Like, and I know, like people say like God hates metal. That can't be true because that sounds like the beginning to a song that I wish that I would have written. Right? That is awesome. It's just truly a, did Jesus seriously say that he, like he came to set the world on fire? Like what in the heck is going on? Um, right, but what does fire mean? Um, fire can, can reference judgment. We see that in the Bible, and that makes sense in context of this chapter because we've been talking about Christ returning and judging people, and either you're found 
with faith in Christ and a faithful servant of Christ, or you're going to suffer in hell because you were unfaithful to Jesus. But then Jesus says this. He says, this fire isn't burning yet, right? Which means judgment hasn't come yet. Um, And Jesus also says that he has to suffer, right? So as I read that and as I thought on it, Jesus is saying he must suffer before this fire will catch the world, all right, and this leads me to believe that in the immediate context of him saying, I've come to set the world on fire and I wish it were already burning, I think he's, he's saying that the fire is the gospel, right? Because we know that's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to die for sinners, and he has come to accomplish this gospel or good news, but first he must suffer, right? And what Jesus means by he must suffer isn't just he must physically die, but it's this word that, that you hear Christians use sometimes called propitiation, that Jesus is going to be the one who bears God's wrath for those who would believe. And that's exactly what Jesus must do. He, he must suffer and die and endure hell on the cross for his people. That's what he must do before this gospel fire can catch the world. All right? But a side note, too, real, real quick. This is cool. I think gospel, um, I think Jesus calls the gospel fire because fire changes the face of everything it comes into contact with. Um, you know, chemically, like right down to the core of what everything is, it becomes changed. Um, So believers, whenever we hear the gospel and we believe the gospel, we become changed from the inside out. The core of us changes, that we now desire obedience to Christ. All of these things within us change. Um, And then also you can look and you can see how the world, everywhere Christianity has went, everywhere the gospel has invaded different cultures, the world has been influenced. Right? You can see that throughout history, that the hospitals are built and schools are built and people's morality shifts because they understand the truth of the gospel. So even if someone doesn't believe the gospel, the gospel still changes everything around them in some way. Well, let's keep going, verse 51 uh, through 53. Do you think, this is Jesus continuing, so he's come to set the world on fire and he must suffer. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So if you have in-law issues, it's completely biblical and it's totally fine. Um, That's corny. It's like a corny preacher joke. I couldn't help myself. I feel kind of slimy for that one, whatever. Um, right now, now, when I first read verse 51, where Jesus says, do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide. I was like, what? What are you talking about? Because like, if you know, like, anyone know the Christmas story? Like, the angel shows up to the shepherd, and he's like, you know, peace. Like, don't be afraid. Like, I bring good tidings. Like, you hear all that. Um, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men, right, if you're into the King James. That's what we hear this angel saying. So whenever I first read that, do you think I've come to bring peace? Well, yeah, Lord, what are you talking about is immediately what I thought. Um, But this isn't a contradiction. Jesus isn't contradicting Scripture here. Because when the Bible talks about Jesus bringing peace to people, it's always within the context of how they view Jesus. It's always in the context of how they respond to his gospel. Um, and it's always peace is brought to believers, right? Reconciliation to God, like peace knowing that Christ won't leave us, that he has settled our debt for our sin to God, always comes to us through believing the gospel, but it's always judgment and punishment to the unbeliever whenever Jesus comes. This is always how it goes down throughout scripture. But Jesus is saying that he comes to divide people, right? Like that's crazy to think about. Like Jesus is gonna divide people. What does he mean by that, right? And Jesus goes on to mention family relationships coming under stress because of the gospel, that relationships are going to be changed in some way. I think it's good to to note here that sometimes this gospel fire welds people together, right? Sometimes it unites people. Like me and my my boy Dave sitting in the back, he is, uh, I call him a gangster all the time. He's from the East End. He has a past way different from mine. I am half a hick from Minford, Ohio. And yet, what do we see? The gospel has welded me and Dave into this relationship where he's my brother, and I love Dave. And if it weren't for the gospel, me and Dave would have nothing in common most of the time. Right? But we have this mutual love for Jesus of the gospel, this gospel fire, if you'll let me get away with that lame kind of a thing. Uh, It welds us together. But at the same time, Jesus says that there is going to be division because of his message. And this division is going to come between believers and non-believers, right? There are two types of people in the world. And this gospel is going to affect all relationships, all groups, right down to the family. 
And that actually makes sense, right? Believers pledge allegiance to Christ above all things. We say, Jesus is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my King. I seek obedience to him. And non-believers, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm not just trying to be offensive, but non-believers pledge allegiance to themselves. It's, it's their will. It's, I mean, they, they may respect the law because they don't want to go to prison, but in their day-to-day life, it's I do what I want to do, and I pledge allegiance to my goals and my standards, and I do as I see fit, right? So as we live and interact with each other, as Jesus contradicts the culture or contradicts the unbelieving individual's allegiance, we're going to see some friction between a believer and a non-believer. Right? But, but what do I mean? Right? Why must there naturally be division between God's people and unbelievers? Right, before we go any further, I, I'm not telling you, I'm not giving you license to become a self-righteous jerk. All right, that's not what I'm doing here at all. Jesus loved sinners, and he still loves sinners because we see people being saved on a regular basis. And Jesus interacted with unbelievers, and he showed them mercy, and he showed them grace. And we are commanded by Jesus to do likewise. So before we go any further, we're talking about division. I'm not giving you license to go be a jerk to anybody. All right? But I think there's a few reasons that we see division in a few ways that we see division between believers and non-believers. And the first one is, upon believing the gospel, we have this dramatic shift in our worldview, right? How we view everything, from morality to how we view politics, and I'm not saying you've got to be a Republican to be a Christian. I'm not about that. Um, sidetracking myself with that. There's so much. Donald Trump is just crazy. I mean, God bless you guys. Like, I just immediately saw a picture of Donald Trump in my face. <laughs> I started laughing. Um, sorry if I offended you guys. I'm sorry. Um, but, like, everything that we think shifts, right? Our, our view on morality changes. Our, our view on politics change. Our view on money. Our view on loving people. On life in general changes. Um, and it comes in line with Scripture, right? Because we take allegiance up with Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our King. And we begin to seek His will in Scripture and submit to it. And as we see more of what God is like and how He operates and commands, we begin to reject various cultural narratives that we get thrown at us and various cultural standards that get thrown at us that contradict Scripture. And we begin to intellectually rebel. Right, so there's there's a, a part of a group of people in our culture that say, you know, um, a child in the womb is not really a life, and yet we as Christians we see, and again, I'm not trying to get super political, but this is just real. And as Christians, we see in Scripture, or we see God in the Old Testament in Psalms saying, "I knit you together in your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made." That God is the one who's sovereign over life and death. We see those things. So whenever the culture tells us, you know, a child in the womb is not a life, we look and we see, well, God says it is a life. So we intellectually rebel against being pro-abortion. As Christians, it's something that we do. Whenever we see. Um, our culture throwing advertisements and this philosophy of get more stuff, get more stuff, chase money, get a job where you can make more money, over and over and over and over again. And we see Jesus a couple of weeks ago says, life is not about possessions. Life is about having a right relationship with Jesus. So we reject that cultural narrative. And we could go on and on and on, but there's just a couple of ways. So we intellectually begin to rebel against our culture. Right? So there's going to be this division and friction between our ideals that are rooted in who Jesus is and the ideals of a world that rejects Jesus. There's friction in our philosophies, in our morality, in how we view all of humanity. Right? And, and if our worldview has been shifted, right? This is, we're huge on this at Rev. If we believe the gospel and our worldview has been shifted, and it will be, then our actions must shift. Or like we talked about last week, we prove that we've not really had a mind change. We've not really had a heart change about who we are and about who Jesus is if our actions don't reflect that change. Right? So our way of living, if we're Christians, it's going to divide us. Right? Not that we become, again, self-righteous jerks or anything, but that there are things that we don't do anymore. Right? There are things that we disagree with that we see the unbelieving world around us doing. And likewise, there are things that we do now that don't make sense to the world around us. Right? And it's because we have a different set of priorities now. We're kingdom-minded. Right? We're oriented on Jesus and his commands. Right? We, we begin to strive in our actions in our daily lives, flowing from our thoughts. We strive for obedience to Jesus. Right? Or you hear a lot of people say, we're striving for holiness. Right? To live a life that's set apart from unbelievers around us. Where we declare with our actions that Jesus is king. And, and this, this manifests itself, this desire for our actions to back up how our worldview has changed. This manifests itself in, in things like how we spend our money, 
right? And we, we hit this a good bit at Rev, that we would become open-handed and we would help people whenever we see that they're in dire straits and we would be freely giving of our time, of ourselves, of our cash, whatever it is. How we treat people, our actions towards how we treat people becomes different, that we would extend forgiveness to those who have hurt us, that we feel like don't really deserve our forgiveness because we realize how much forgiveness we've been given on a daily basis from God, right? The things that we invest time into, we volunteer our time to get involved with other people's lives and call people and shoot people texts and just check in on them, how you doing, and we'll become more kind people in our day-to-day lives. And I'll say this, many unbelievers view things like that as nice, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not up here saying, like, if you do a nice thing, like, an unbeliever is going to come to you and be like, what the heck are you doing? Because, like, they're completely amoral. I'm not saying that at all. Um, people may consider the things that we do to reflect our allegiance to Jesus as nice, but they don't get it. Right? They don't understand us. Like my aunt, she's not a Christian. And uh, dude comes in the store, and he's always broke, and he needed to borrow gas money or something like that. I think it was a few weeks ago. He needed to borrow gas money. And I gave it to him, and I told him to just pay me back whenever he could. And she looks at me, and she goes, why would you? Why? Like, that's your money. Why would you do that? And I was like, well, you know, I, I have more than I need, and Jesus says to help people if you have more than you need. And she was like, you know, that's, that's fine. Like, it's cool that you did that, but I wouldn't do that. He's a bum, right? Like, that's her worldview versus mine. So there was this little bit of friction there where she thought I was crazy. Or if someone comes into the store that I, I don't really like, that has done something to my mother, which there, there are some people who have, have said things about her or said things to her that I don't like, that I would still try to treat them with kindness. She's sitting over here going, why would you do that? Screw that guy, right? You should be mean to him like he's been mean to you and your family. And she says, again, that's nice that you would do those things. But, again, there's a friction there because she doesn't understand why I would do something like that. And I'm not trying to make this about me because I'm a sinner. Please, please don't think that I'm like some, like, super saint or anything. I need the grace of Jesus more than most of you, I would imagine, because I am pretty wicked. Um, But one of the places, again, so they may say something's nice, but they don't really get it. But one of the places that I've personally seen and experienced division as I've sought to live like Christ isn't so much in the things that I do. Because, again, the world looks and says, you know, it's good to be kind to people. um, But it's in the things that I won't do anymore that's caused division between me and family and friends of mine. Um, And maybe some of you guys have have had to deal with this, too. Um, Story time. Uh, Before I was a Christian, um, I would hang out at my buddy's house, who will remain nameless. I would hang out at his house, and our MO, every time we got together, was to drink as much as we could or pull our money together and get as much weed as we could and just get trashed, right? And I would usually end up on a laptop looking up stuff that, like, I should never have been looking up, um, inviting girls over, right? Just always, everyone's trying to hook up, and everyone's getting hammered, and that was just what we did. And we went to this dude's house all the time, like multiple times a week. This is all that we were about. And then I became a Christian, Right? And I just, I couldn't be around that kind of stuff anymore because I desired Jesus more than I desired that. And I knew if I was around it, I'd screw up and probably end up partaking of those kinds of things. So I just couldn't do it. It wasn't my scene anymore. I loved Jesus more than I loved that. But I still wanted to hang with them, right? These are my friends. And I know that the gospel tells me, go hang out with non-Christians, right? Because they're never going to hear the gospel if you're not there. And I wanted to hang with them. And yet the invitations for me to come quit coming. They knew that. They would call me and say, hey, dude, we're getting together to do this. And I would just say, man, I'm not about that. But if you guys are getting together just to hang out and, like, not do anything ridiculous, I want to be there because I love you guys and you're my friends. And over time, there was this slow separation where they didn't want me to be around anymore because I wasn't partaking of that same kind of life that they were. And when they would ask me why, I would tell them, because of Christ, because this is sin and I can't do this. And I lost friends. Now, some of us have experienced something similar to this as we follow Jesus, I'm sure. Right? This, is, this is fairly common whenever we begin to live lives like Jesus would have us. Um, you just don't have the same interests anymore. You desire obedience to Christ, and they don't, and it hurts. Because these are people that you really loved, and all of a sudden you see that they tend to sometimes not want much to do with you. Um, and why, though? Like, why does that happen? Um, why does this happen when our lives conform to be more like Christ? I, I think that sometimes, not always, sometimes, people see Christians doing what they know is right. right they see christians doing what is right and keeping from sin and they know deep down that they should be following christ too and that they should be living a life similar to ours because of our faith in christ and they become ashamed right even though that we're not trying to shame them even though we're not being rude or pointing our finger down their face and telling them you know like stop it um 
that they don't want to feel that kind of shame anymore. This is just sometimes, I think, that they don't want to feel that kind of shame anymore when we're around because we've refused to do those kinds of things and we condemn those things as sinful and they don't want us around because they're sick of feeling that kind of guilt. It's just something to consider. Um, and then thirdly, and this is where I really want to land because this is, this is where you're going to see the most division come, right? Because there's some people like, if you, if you guys know what straight edge means, it means you don't drink or do drugs or anything like that. Like there are plenty of non-Christians who are incredibly moral and straight edge and they'd be totally fine with not being involved in that kind of stuff. Um, but as we, as we live and interact with non-believers, there's going to be conversations that we must initiate. And this is where you're going to see legitimate division occurs whenever we talk to people. Right? And these kind of conversations that must occur are conversations where we as Christians are intentionally trying to point our unbelieving friends and family to Christ with the gospel. Right? This, is, this is a call that we're given from Jesus right, to go make disciples. And remember, if our worldview has changed, we believe Jesus is Lord and we must submit to what he says. Um, so these conversations, we're always picking our places and attempting these talks because we believe in the lordship of Jesus. This doesn't mean that we can't just hang out sometimes, right? I'm not telling you to be like a Jehovah's Witness where like every time you knock on your buddy's door, like, hey, would you like to talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus? And they slam the door in your face. Anyone have those guys wake you up at like 9 in the morning? No? I'm the only one that gets J-Dub knockers? Yeah, I call them J-Dubs. I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, but I'm not saying that we have to be like that necessarily. But here's what we must do. We must see our unbelieving friends and families' urgency and need for a Savior in Jesus and then be pushed to speak to them accordingly. Like, we must do that. We have to do this. We have to warn people of hell. We have to give them God's standards, what the Bible calls his law, and show them how everyone fails to hit that. And that none of us can perfectly obey. That everyone has lusted. Everyone has been sinfully angry. Everyone has been greedy. Everyone has been selfish. Everyone has not worshipped God at some point in time. Everyone has treated someone in a way that they shouldn't have treated them. Everyone has fallen short of God's standard of the law. And then once we tell them that, we point them to Christ's suffering. Him suffering the wrath of God in our place on the cross as the way of escape for them. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news. right? And as we do that, as we have these kind of conversations with people, some people, most people, are going to reject it. And as they reject it, some will reject us by extension. Right? This kind of division happens because most of the time unbelievers don't want the weight of our words to bear down on them. They don't want the weight of the gospel to bear on them. They don't want the weight of their own sin to bear on them and their guilt before God to come to the forefront of their mind. They don't want that. And we might relent for a season upon their request. If they say, I don't want to hear it, we may relent for a season. But we know that we're going to keep looking for places to tell them the gospel. And that might cause some of our dearest family and friends to divide against us and not want to be around us anymore. That's just the truth. Now, I know that there's some people there who, who would tell me, I'm sure there, there may be people in this room, who would tell me that, I, that what I've said about our faith causing division is not accurate. I'm sure that there are people here who would say, you know, I've been a Christian for years, and I've never experienced any kind of friction with unbelievers around me whatsoever. I've never experienced any kind of friction with the world around me whatsoever. And if that's you here this evening, I would pose this, I would pose three things to you, if that's your mindset, that what I'm saying is not entirely accurate. Either, one, you're calling Jesus a liar here. <laughs> like, he says, I have come to cause division. The gospel will cause division between people. So, and I don't think very many people, are, especially that, that claim to be Christians, would say that Jesus is a liar. That's just not good, that's not good business, right? Uh, the second thing that I would pose to you, so if you don't call Jesus a liar, I would say that maybe you don't have any unbelieving friends. Maybe you've secluded yourself off and everyone in your family is a Christian, and you've gotten into this little, I call it the khaki army bubble. Like, you know, like most people wear khakis and like polos to church. I call it the khaki army. You've gotten in this khaki army bubble where all you have is believing friends and you have no unbelievers that are close to you. Or three, you're not living out your faith. I think those are the three options that we have. Either Jesus is a liar or you don't know any unbelievers closely or you're not living out your faith genuinely. 
Right? So this is the question where we all look inside of ourselves and ask this, am I living in step with this gospel that's supposed to be fire and change me from my core? Or do I just go with the flow? Right? Do, do I refuse to make myself uncomfortable for Christ? Do I, do I refuse to intellectually rebel and just accept the moral standards of the world and accept wickedness that's going on around me? Do I just go with the flow and not live a life that's any different from my unbelieving friends around me and there's no friction with my friends now? Do I just go with the flow and let people that I know and claim to love go to hell without ever telling them the gospel and I just kind of roll with it? Or am I living in step with this gospel that's supposed to be like fire? Now, I'm not telling you to go around and be a punk and to be argumentative, but Jesus says that division will happen at some point. So if you've never experienced any kind of rub with unbelievers, we have to ask ourselves those questions. But ultimately, right, back to division. Ultimately, I, I think people become divided over the gospel because of truth. Right, like we talked about earlier in the sermon, because of truth, I think people become divisive and divided. We're going to go to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and then hop down to verses 28 through 32. It's a little bit lengthy, but we need to hear this. I think this is why there's division over the gospel. Verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So God says here, straight up, even unbelievers know that he exists. Deep down, unbelievers know that they have sinned, that they deserve his wrath, and yet all people suppress the truth and won't seek God. They won't seek his forgiveness. Instead, they deny the truth that they inherently know, and they make up their own ideas about God. They say things like, God wouldn't punish me. Right? God is not wrathful for sin. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in God in general. Or I've done nothing to deserve hell. God says that the unbelieving world around us has exchanged the truth about him for a lie. And that lie has become what I'm going to call their surface truth. On their exterior, they say, you know, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. That that's their exterior truth. But deep down, they know the real truth. And as Christians, we confront this surface lie that they throw up to themselves and that they have bought into. And we show them the truth. And they recognize it as the truth. And they become offended. And that's because the gospel is offensive. We have the, think about this, we have the most offensive message that you can possibly ever tell anybody. And and I'll I'll throw this out to you too. Uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul said this. The gospel, or the sinner who is unoffended by the gospel is someone who has not understood the gospel. The gospel says this. All men are wicked. All men do not seek God. Everyone deserves to suffer God's wrath because of their sin. And then God demands that every man and woman repent, turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ and submit to him. That's offensive. Because people think that they're naturally good for some reason. Usually because they're judging themselves by their own standards of what is good instead of by God's standards of what is good. 
The gospel is offensive. We demand all people to repent. But why do people find it offensive? Because scripture says, by nature, we are at enmity with God. We are God's enemies by nature. We're born sinners. And, and some would say, I don't, I'm not hostile towards God. I just don't really care. Right? It may look like apathy, but God actually says it's us posturing ourselves against him. That that's what we're actually doing. That we want to do us, right? Instead of doing what he would have us do. And yet God still relentlessly demands that all people repent and believe. He ex- is extending mercy. So as Christians, we demand on God's behalf that people repent and believe the gospel too. And this divides because it's offensive. And, and listen to me. And this is hard to do as Christians. We should be heartbroken. We should be heartbroken. Not angered. Not becoming self-righteous or asking someone, why can't you just get it right? Why can't you just change? Why can't you just believe? We should be heartbroken by this gospel rejection and division that comes. We should be provoked, sure. But we should be provoked not to anger, but rather to prayer. We should be provoked to loving the unbelievers around us in spite of their negative responses to the gospel, right? Because God continuously extends love and forgiveness and mercy to them if they would just believe. So we must do the same. And and we can never become self-righteous by acting like that we did something. Because the Bible tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith and it's a gift. You did nothing to earn your salvation. God's the one who gave you the means to have faith in the gospel. So you should never become self-righteous or arrogant towards people around you that become divisive over the gospel. You should pity them. You should be heartbroken for them. So in all of this, I think what Jesus is telling his followers is that we should mentally prepare themselves ourselves for heartbreak. That we might lose friends and family for the sake of his gospel. This is one of those instances where Jesus is constantly reminding us to count the cost of discipleship to him. He says, know what you're getting into before you decide to follow me because it's going to cost you everything. But rest assured, Jesus is worth the turmoil and he is worth the pain that may come with this division because of our conversations with people. But let's continue on in the passage. And we're going to see that just as Jesus has prepared and warned his people that he's going to give a warning to those who would reject him. Verse 54. Then Jesus turned to the crowd and said, When you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, Here comes a shower, and you're right. And when the south wind blows, you say, Today will be a scorcher, and it is. You fools! You know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. So Jesus now has turned from his disciples who he's warned them, this can cost you everything. And he's turned to the crowds who reject him as the son of God, who reject him as the one who will pay for their sins. And he calls them fools. Or a better word is a hypocrite. He says, you hypocrites. Because he's saying, you can predict the weather based off of what you see, but you can't see the truth right in front of you of who I am and what I've come to do. You're a fool. You're acting foolishly. Open your eyes and believe in me. And this is a similar concept to Romans 1 that we just read, right? That these people then had Jesus standing right in front of them, speaking truth to them. Things are resonating with them. They know that what he's saying is right. And they can see his perfect life in front of them as he speaks. And today, similarly, we have the Gospels. We have the Scriptures for us that tell us and speak to us of what Christ has done and what he has said and we can heal or hear and feel that truth. God's word declares who Jesus is and yet people suppress the truth. There is no excuse for not believing and Jesus says you're being a hypocrite. You know the truth and you just won't obey the truth. 57. Jesus says, "Why can't you decide for yourselves what is right?" When you're on your way to court with your accuser, try to settle the matter before you get there. Otherwise, your accuser may drag you before the judge who will hand you over to an officer who will throw you into prison. And if that happens, you won't be free again until you've paid the very last penny. So Jesus is now demanding those who he's called hypocrites that know the truth about who he is, and that's all people, that who would reject him 
and become reflective. He's telling them to become reflective over what is the right course of action. He says, why can't you decide for yourself what is right? He's saying, look in yourself, become introspective, and, and ask yourself, what is the right course of action that I should respond with to Jesus' free gift of salvation by faith that he's extending? Because he's offering this to anyone who would believe. And then he tells a parable. And in this parable, there are two men. One owes the other man a lot of money, and they're on their way to court. The one who is owed is taking him before a judge, and he's going to have him thrown in prison. And the one who is guilty of owing money has no defense whatsoever. He is guilty, he owes the money, and he's just not paid it back. Jesus is saying, you will be put in prison. It's a debtor's prison where you will be there until your debt is paid. And here's the thing, when you're in prison, you can't work to make money to pay your debt. So you will be in prison forever. Jesus is saying, if, if in this parable you're the person who owes the money, your best bet would be to settle with the guy that you owe before you get to, get to court and are thrown in prison. So what Jesus is doing is he's drawing this line connecting all people to the debtor in the story. That's because all people have a debt for sin on them, and the payment for that sin is God's wrath in hell for eternity. He's saying everyone owes God, and Jesus is beckoning them to open their eyes, to obey the truth that they already inherently know, and be settled with God by believing in Him. And He's saying, settle before it's too late, and you're put in hell to pay what you owe. Because either Jesus pays for what you've done, or you will pay for what you've done. This is the call that Jesus gives to everyone. He says, repent or perish. Believe or pay for your sin yourself. And here's the thing. Jesus knows that the words that he's speaking, here's where it all ties together. He knows that the words he is speaking is going to cause division. He knows that people are going to hate him for what he's saying. And he knows that ultimately they're going to kill him over the demands that he's giving to believe and repent. And yet, he does it anyway. He does it anyway. He is unwavering in doing so because he is unwavering in his love for sinners. He desires to extend grace to the ones who hate him, even though he knows it's going to cost him his life. So if you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and and you've not submitted to this gospel, Jesus is extending forgiveness of your debt. He is giving you amnesty all of the debt, all of the division that you've had against him, your refusal to submit and love him, all can be forgiven by faith in what he has done for you. You don't even have to do anything because it's already been done. He's already reconciled you to God. If you would just believe, Jesus is beckoning you to come to him and ask for grace. And he promises that by his sacrifice, he will settle your account. You will be debt free to God. He says, just believe. And you know that you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. You can feel the weight of your guilt. You know the truth. When you're alone, when you're in your bed, whenever none of your friends are around and you're not distracted by media and you're not distracted by television, you're not distracted by anything and you're just left alone with your thoughts, your heart condemns you. You know that you've done wrong. And you know that someday you're going to have to pay for what you've done. Don't suppress the truth. Don't fight it any longer. Give in and know what it means to be at peace with God. Give in and know what it it feels like to know that whenever you stand before God in Christ, you are going to experience no wrath, that he's going to welcome you in as one of his children. All because Jesus has bore God's wrath himself for you on the cross with his sufferings. There is no condemnation, there is no guilt, there is no weight, there is no wrath in Christ. And Jesus, and I'm telling you by extension, come and be free before you have to settle it yourself. And if you're here and you are a believer, and I'll leave you guys with these thoughts, I pray that you would become bold for Christ. I pray that you would, though heartbroken, and through tears, and hating it every step of the way, welcome the division that comes from living a life with Jesus as your Lord. I pray that we would all become bold. That like Jesus, we would love people so much that we would confront them with the truth. No matter how uncomfortable it makes us or what the cost, even though the people around us that we love so much, that's the whole reason we're telling them this, is we don't want them to suffer in hell. They may hate us and reject us, that we would still love them enough to do this. 
It's my prayer that, that we would have our worldview so dramatically transformed by Scripture that we would stand for truth and be courageous enough to live it out. Again, no matter what the cost, giving up whatever it is in our lives for the sake of Christ. I, I know it's going to be hard. I, I know that what Jesus is telling us to do here is hard. I, I get it. I, I have had friendships and relationships that I love dearly slowly die off because of our faith in Jesus. I've had it happen. And I've also had them end in a fireball of anger. And it sucks. It hurts. It's scary. I get that. But the question that we all have to answer is this. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? Undoubtedly, Jesus is worth it. Undoubtedly, consider this, no one, no no family member, no parent, no sibling, no friend, no one has ever loved us as much as to undergo the wrath of God the Father for us. No one has ever loved us that much. I love my family, but I will not go to hell for my family. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He suffered hell for us on the cross. No one has loved us that much. No one can promise to unfailingly direct our lives for our good and then succeed at it. And that's what Jesus promises us. No one else can legitimately be there for us when no one else is. Jesus promises to be a friend that sticks closer than family. That Jesus says that he will be with us until the end of the age and that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us no matter what comes our way. No matter who hates us, that he never will. So Christians, we may lose all here for the sake of the gospel, but Christ promises to be our all. And listen to me. We might lose all here, but Jesus, we cannot lose. We cannot lose We are secure in his love. He has purchased us back from God the Father's wrath, and he loves us. He is everything that we are not. He is righteous, and we are sinners, and yet he gives us everything that we need. He takes our sin, and he makes us righteous. He has saved us, and he will keep us. And he will be with us from the moment that we believe through eternity. He is everything that we need. And because of that, he is worth any kind of suffering. He is worth any kind of division for. Because he has first experienced that division and suffered for us first. So go and be bold for Christ and have these conversations with people and live a life that proclaims Christ around people and welcome the division. Let's pray. Father, you are better to us than we deserve. We deserve hell and you give us Christ. We deserve eternal division from you. And yet you give us Christ to reconcile us back to you. God, we thank you for that. God, I pray that we would take the words of Jesus that we heard this evening and we would catch fire with the gospel as well. We wouldn't be a, that we wouldn't be afraid to engage conversations with the unbelieving world around us, to point them to the cross that we wouldn't be afraid to intellectually rebel against the moral values of the culture around us because you are our king. That we would live a life that gives you praise and honor and glory no matter how odd we may seem or no matter what friendships it might cost us. Father, we know that your son brought division, but he brings peace to all who believe. God, I pray that we would be filled with that peace. And that because of that, we would become fearless and proclaim the gospel to everyone. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.